Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele. In this episode, Denny and I sit down and dig into how to make the triple IPA from both our points of view and that of professional brewers that you know and love. And then I sit down and I taste four prime examples of the style, Russian River Plenty of the Younger, Heretics Evil 3, El Segundo Brewing Company's Power Plant, and Eagle Rock Brewing's 11Zs. It's a crop ton of hops in a glass. But first, a message from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, a group of more than 40,000 individuals from more than 70 countries who share a passion for brewing and enjoying great beer. Learn more at homebrewersassociation.org. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Well, welcome back, and remember, as always, make sure you tell your sponsors that you love them and that you heard about them here on The Brew Files. But let's talk a little bit about this new tradition. And I say new tradition, and really, it's been going on for more than a decade now. Uh, it's just new to me. You know, and I didn't i didn't even know it was a tradition until you told yeah, me. Yeah, so here's the thing. It, we know American brewers and American beer drinkers love their IPAs, and the bigger, the better, the stronger, the hoppier, et cetera, et cetera. So the tradition is born because of the bistro in Hayward, California. They have a, a IPA festival, a double IPA festival, now a triple IPA festival. And so that always happens in late January, early February. So naturally, brewers wanting to show off the hoppiest beers that they could with the freshness that they wanted. Well, they started making these triple IPAs specifically targeted to be released in time for the bistro's IPA festival. And because of that, now we see in January and February a lot of triple IPAs coming out. And so a couple of examples, uh, Evil 3 from Heretic, uh, Power Plant from El Segundo Brewing Company uh, down here in LA, and also the very vaunted, very hyped, and very hard to get your hands on, Plenty of the Younger. Now, Denny, I don't think you've never had Plenty of the Younger, right? Uh, no, I have not, actually. I'm sure you'd have it and say it's a fine beer, but not worth the hype, <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, as far as I'm concerned, there's almost no beer that's worth the hype. And there's, as far as I'm concerned, there's no beer that's worth standing in line to get. If uh, I happen to see some of those at my favorite good beer store, I would probably pick one up to try, but I ain't going to go out of my way. As with all things in American craft brewing, we started in a place where, you know, it was normal, right? You know, you had IPA and IPA became a thing. Really, in my mind, IPA started to become a thing that you saw all the time in the 90s. And then, you know, before that, you'd always go into a place and they'd have a pale ale. And then IPA became a thing. Well, in about 2000, we start getting the the double IPA. And, of course, the classic there is Plenty of the Elder. And Vinny actually claims that he made the double IPA originally when he was uh, working at his little brew pub in Temecula called the Blind Pig. And he basically made a bigger, hoppier beer for one of his first beers because he was worried about the, the equipment that he had. And he's just like, well, I'm just going to bombard this thing with flavor. But Plenty of the Elder is one that everybody knows. And then in 2005, he actually released Plenty the Younger, which is the, the triple IPA. And now it's not the first triple IPA on the market. There were other triple IPAs at the time, but he released it specifically for the Bistro's uh, IPA festival. And it kind of became the, the exemplar in a lot of ways that uh, Plenty of the Elder is. You know, Plenty of the Elder is a, a really fantastic double IPA. And to me, it's still sort of the measuring stick for other double IPAs. Um, what do you think of Elder? 
Yeah, right. Uh, it's a it's a really really good beer. Uh, I don't think I would go as far as saying it's the best beer I've ever had, or even the best double IPA I've ever had. Although that would require me to think of what was, and I don't want to do that either. So I'll just say it's a really good beer. I would happily drink it anytime I'm given the chance. Uh, but I'm probably not going to be going out of my way to find it. Now, when we talk about American IPAs, we know that. It's all about the hops. Give me the hops, more hops for classical West Coast IPAs and double IPAs and triple IPAs. Also give me all that hop bitterness, not so much on the New England IPA side of things. And one of the things that we've seen is that over time, there's been a real evolution in terms of how IPAs work here in this country. You know, the original being kind of that Ballantine's IPA from way back in the day when it was actually barrel aged on oak and allowed to age for a year before being served to things that have gone from darker to copper now to a focus almost exclusively on pale malts, you know, and very little crystal if you're using any and then very crisp. Um, and actually nowadays actually less bitter than they used to be, but still featuring very firm bitterness. So here are the truths that I think that you get about American IPA. Again, it's all that hop expression Bitterness is now actually reduced, um, and you're seeing a lot of brewers talking about doing all late hops, like nothing in the kettle, or if there's anything in the kettle, it's a small addition at the end. Uh, things going into whirlpools. Uh, hop extract is now being used all over the place. I just had a talk with uh, Julian Trago the other day, and he's using extract in his beers. Um, color is as pale as pale can be, and the malt has moved to this sort of these plain, simple choices, you know, like a pale ale two row or a Pilsner malt, none of the darker crystals. I think when you and I first started making IPA, you know, it was not at all unusual to have like, Oh, Hey, I've got some C60 in here. I've got some, you know, C100. You saw a lot of, a lot of darker crystals in earlier IPAs that you just don't see anymore. It was pretty much mandatory to, uh, to put crystal 60 in one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I think that that comes from all of our experiences with like Sierra Nevada, right? You know, Sierra Nevada Pale has C60 in it. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and so does uh, Sierra Nevada Celebration, which is a classic West Coast IPA. These days, of course, I think if you got anywhere near an IPA with a bag of crystal malt, people would look at you funny. <laughs> and that, that and that's particularly true when we're talking about triple IPA, because here here's how I view triple IPA. You have an, a starting OG somewhere north of 100, right? So 1.100. You have an ABV that's 10 plus percent. And I've seen these like uh, plenty of the younger this year is I think 10.1. Uh, some, uh, sometimes you see triple IPAs at 12. You know, people start talking about quad IPAs, uh, quad IPAs going up to like 13, 14%. And IBUs, of course, over 100. And even though the IBUs are so high, they have to be that high because you have such a big beer. The triple IPAs themselves don't actually normally feel like very strikingly bitter beers in my mind. And I think there's actually a good reason for that. And we'll talk about that because some of the challenges is when you have that much malt, yeah. And even though it's all pale malt and you're, you're really trying to force out that big hop aroma, you still have so much malt to make these beers that it's hard to get the beer to finish dry, you know, or not, not dry, dry feeling, dry tasting, right. You know, I get it to the point where people will look at it and go, oh, okay, that's an IPA, right? You know, I I think that's why sugar is pretty much required in these, as well as uh, pretty sulfate-heavy water. Yeah, you also have the other challenge of, with all that malt, not only getting the hop expression up there, but you also have the problem of dealing with your yeast management and making sure they're not getting fusels, right? You know, you're not getting any of those higher alcohols, which you definitely don't want in this. So, yeah, you you have a lot of different things that you have to take into consideration there also because of the amount of bitterness remember i said uh, hop extract is no longer a dirty word you have to deal with the amount of plant material that you're adding into the kettle so hop extract becomes important here for a lot of these and really then how do you dissolve all that hop oil and get it delivered to your nose above the ethanol it's it, it, there there are ways that people address this and we're going to walk you through them i'm also going to tell you a couple of different brewers approaches to things so again malt simple better 90 plus percent of a pale or a pilsner malt. 
You're not going anything complicated here. And I actually have seen a lot of these where it's 100% a pale malt. Sometimes in looking through the recipes and talking to brewers, they'll have a dose of something like carapils or wheat for some additional heading or a little additional body. And that's that still feels very old school to me. Yeah, I agree, man. I think that we have learned that uh, wheat and carapils are not uh, really required for uh, foam production. Well, and particularly in a beer where you have so much hops because hops themselves are foam positive. Exactly. The polyphenols and the hops will bind the proteins in the beer and give you big foam. Yep. And then, as Denny mentioned earlier, sugar is almost de rigueur. It's rare to find one of these uh, recipes without sugar in it. If you listen to the last replay of the Brew Files, which was, what, episode 57 that was replayed, which was me talking with Craig Chaplin about how, how he makes his old school triple IPA. In that original version of the recipe, he was talking about using sugar. His most recent additions use no sugar. His is all just pale two-row. Uh, and he's he's figured, he's using his yeast in such a way now that he doesn't have to, he doesn't feel the need to drive the extra attenuation with sugar. But I would say for almost all of these I've ever had, they have sugar involved in them. Yeah, that's one of the things that really distinguishes it from an American barley wine is getting that uh, that body thinned out uh, for a triple IPA, which uh, obviously uh, an American-style barley wine is going to have a big full body to it. Yeah, and then also to help drive some of the, uh, that dryness, you're going to mash low, 148, 150 area. And then the other one that I've also seen more people playing around with is one of the side effects of uh, the Brut IPA uh, trend there for that year is brewers have started to embrace using enzymes in the mash to help actually drive further simple sugar production. So you can take a page out of the brewed IPA book, add some of the, you know, alpha amylase, what is it? Uh, Ultra firm, uh, for instance, from uh, white labs, you can add some of that into your mash and actually drive and promote further simple sugar production, which will of course then also promote a drier finish. You have other thoughts about malt in a triple IPA? I have used uh, some Munich malt in uh, around 12% Munich malt very successfully. And I think that it gives uh, some of the flavor and color that you might get from crystal malt, but without the uh, the crystal malt thickness and sweetness. There you go. Good point. All right. And then on the water, it should be fairly simple, right? You start with, as we always tell you, start with clean water. Get rid of uh, get rid of all the chlorine, the chloramine. Uh, you want to make sure you're acidified properly to get your best enzymatic action, because again, you're going to be trying to convert a lot of a lot of starch into very simple sugar. So you need to make sure your pH is absolutely spot on. Uh, mineral balance is heavily sulfate, as we were talking about earlier. Um, and what I've, I've heard from a lot of brewers is they're they're not only using the gypsum, they're also using Epsom salt to kind of help drive some of the crispness, and more and more. I'm reading from brewers who are doing that same trick that we talked with Julian Shrago about uh, a few episodes back of acidifying the wort post boil to actually drop the pH to like 5.1, 5.15, you know, drop it down a little bit just to be able to promote some additional crispness because your dry hopping is going to drive your pH up, which will make the beer taste a little flat. I would say that probably your water, you're going to want at least 300 to 350 parts per million of, of sulfate in it. And that can really drive your calcium way up, which is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, too much calcium can lead to premature flocculation of your yeast. So that's that's when the Epsom salts uh, really come in handy to make up the rest of that sulfate without getting uh, too much calcium. You just have to be careful you don't get too much magnesium either. Yeah, exactly. That's always the danger with Epsom salt. But like I said, the other the other trick out there is uh, play around with wort acidification because more and more brewers I'm talking to are doing that for their IPAs. All right, hops. One universal thing I've heard from every brewer I've talked to about this, you need more hops than you think you do. You are going to use all the hops and then some because one of the problems is as your original gravity goes up, of course, your hop utilization goes down. And that all that aromatic and flavor addition that happens, you know, from just all that malt, that big beer uh, body, the yeast, it's going to hide some of your hop characteristics as well. So you need a lot more hops. You're seeing a lot of people out there using concentrated hops, you know, 
hop extract, for instance, you can buy some from uh, Yakima Valley hops. You can, I think, uh, YCH also sells hop extract homebrewers. Uh, you know, you get a can; it will last you forever. Um, you can go listen to Craig Chaplin's talk about how he did uh, his hop extract. If you don't want to mess around with hop extract, then at the very least, you're probably going to want to explore using the uh, cryo style hops or even uh, what's the the YVH ones are Lupomax. So use use some of those you know concentrated hop products just to be able to drive more hop character with less vegetable material. The other thing is you are going to want multiple dry hops, so many dry hops, and probably multiple doses. So universally, all the brewers I talk to are doing two dosing uh, strategies for their dry hops. Uh, And they're using, a lot of them are using somewhere around, say, like four to six pounds per barrel. So if you're talking four and a half pounds per American barrel, you're looking at almost three quarters of a pound as a home brewer in a typical homebrew batch size for dry hops. Yeah, man, that is like way over the shell hammer limit. I know, but that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm seeing from these professional brewers. You know, you say four and a half pounds per, uh, per barrel. So that's four and a half divided by 31 and a half. And then you times that by five, right? You know, you're getting 0.71 pounds per homebrew, uh, homebrew size. And yeah, it's insane. And I'm, you know, but this is what the professional breweries are doing for this. And I think even if you go and you look at uh, Craig Chaplin's recipe, the the old school triple IPA, which you can find on uh, our website, he's he's still using a ton of hops in there. And let's actually pull that up. You know, I I wonder if maybe they might get more dry hop character with less hops. That that's definitely what Shellhammer found. It's possible, but uh, yeah, if, if we look at uh, Craig's uh, recipe for. 11 gallons, so twice the, uh, twice the usual size. He's got nine ounces of hops in for his first dry hop. And then he's got another six ounces in for his second dry hop. So he's in that line with what the professional brewers are doing, you know, that nearly, uh, nearly a pound. So it's, it's definitely interesting. <laughs> But all the all the brewers all the brewers I keep to- uh, talking to are all like you're going to need way more hops than you think you do. Okay, I would. Well, you know what? If that's what they want to do, that's fine. Uh, I have definitely found uh, diminishing results if I go above eight grams per liter. So, and eight grams per liter in um, in American units. Yeah, that's that's that? like what about six ounces, something like that. That seems about right. So yeah, because eight times twenty twenty three times eight is one. Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean, you're looking at uh, what one hundred and sixty eight gr- uh, grams or so. Uh, one hundred and sixty eight grams divided by twenty eight grams. It's about, it's, it's, yeah, it's about six ounces. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I recall. I've I've bumped up against that limit a number of times, and I've found that it works really well. Uh, a couple times when I have just gone for the good old American "more is better" theory, I I can't say that I have gotten better results. But you know, these guys can do what they want to do, but they might be able to save themselves some money if they experimented some. <laughs> well, the uh, the. Uh the the other thing that we're also seeing is again I said multiple doses and we're seeing like where they're doing one uh, one or two doses of where it's like a week and then two or three days. The other uh, trick that is also universally used or fairly universally used is doing a hop recirculation. And so what they will do with the dry hop after they have everything in is they will blow CO two back through the tank periodically. Uh, up through the up through one of the bottom ports, and blow that CO two through and rouse the the hops back up into solution, uh, just to kind of keep some circulation going. So that's another trick that that we're seeing at the professional level uh, for homebrewers. Uh, if you're wanting to do that, I guess you could you can always well rouse your tank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so shake it around some, huh? Yeah, just don't shake it too vigorously. And again, the other thing that we're seeing is a lot of brewers talking about making sure that their final pH is actually fairly low uh, because they they feel like, remember, dry hopping causes pH to rise. And if the if the pH rises too high, your beer is going to taste kind of uh, flabby and f- flat. So you really want to pop that acid in there just to make sure that everything is actually shining brightly. And then last but not least, packaging. You've heard me, you've heard me... Uh, 
well, not really rant, but you've heard me talk about this multiple times, particularly for IPAs, you must control your oxygen. Yeah, any oxygen exposure post dry hopping is just going to rob your beer of all that wonderful hop character that you've just worked so hard to get into place. And so the oxygen aspects here, purge your kegs. I don't care if you're doing the, you know, gassing it up and, and pulling the PRV, you know, doing that four or five times, or if you're doing what I do, which is what I prefer, which is fill the keg up with sanitizer and push that liquid out so that you're pretty down to nothing in the keg, you must control your hop exposure. The other thing that we didn't talk about, uh, ferment here, uh, you need a clean attenuative yeast. So, you know, make sure, you know, this is a perfect time for those, any of those Chico strains, right? You want to use a lot of yeast, go ahead and make sure like, you know, brew up a batch of beer ahead of time, make a regular IPA. That's what I'm doing right now. Make a regular IPA and use the yeast from that to ferment your triple IPA. And you might be better off actually making a pale ale instead of another IPA because uh, with the lower gravity of a pale ale, you'll end up with uh, a little bit healthier yeast. Oh yeah, sure. But you know, still make something. Make something, yeah, right. make, make something ahead of time and use that yeast cake. Uh, I'm doing it with an IPA. Yes, a pale ale would be better. And make sure you keep a, a handle on your fermentation temperature. This is not a time for you to go all quite crazy with your, your temperatures. You know, you're going to want to make sure that you're keeping, if you're using a traditional strain like a, like a Chico, then you want to make sure that you're keeping that down. And then I also highly recommend that before you do your dry hop, you get your, uh, you get your yeast out of there. Um, now, one other technique that you can play with is people are talking about biotransformation, right? And I was talking with uh, Julian about that the other day. And you know, getting uh, getting some of the hops in there just before fermentation is done is also another way to actually ex- accentuate some different hop characters. So it's another thing to play with. But uh, for the most part, when you start your massive dry hop, make sure you get your yeast out of there. Definitely agree with getting the beer off the yeast for dry hopping. It's my pretty much standard technique. Uh, the other thing that makes that a good idea is that that will really, really pretty much eliminate uh, any possibility of hop creep, uh, which, you know, is not a big a deal as homebrewers think it is. But when you're putting a whole bunch of hops into a beer that has a, a whole bunch of yeast from a big fermentation, uh, it's a possibility. Some other things to try while making a triple IPA. Uh, you could do a quad IPA. Uh, El Segundo, who they make their power plant, and I talked about that earlier, and you'll hear me doing a tasting of it shortly. Uh, they have one that they call nuclear power plant, which is at 12% alcohol. And it's basically in order to make a quad IPA, it's do everything that you just did for a triple IPA. Just do more of it. <laughs> more sugar. Yeah, especially more sugar. Yeah. Uh, fermentation uh, techniques that you can try. Uh, you could always do uh, sugar feeding. That's very popular amongst homebrewers. Like, you know, here, make the beer with malt and then feed the sugar in afterwards. I think, uh, when, if I remember correctly, when we talked to Graciani a couple, a couple of months back, he does that. Uh, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of it. I think if you had enough good, powerful yeast, you don't need to do the sugar feed. And it's just one less thing that you'd possibly screw up. Yep, I totally agree with that. All right, and then and then of course you you do have other people who are playing around with Quake strains and doing that and seeing what sort of madness they can make with Quake, but make sure that you like Quake and make sure that you can hide up any Quakey characteristics that you don't like. Um, things to also try with uh, your hops. Uh, talked with some people and they actually are talking about trying to crush up their pellets. Right. So instead of just dumping pellets in their rod, kind of giving them a smash with a hammer or something, uh, you see this happen at the professional brewery level. They'll do that all the time. They'll break up their blocks. Uh, probably less important here at the homebrew level. The other thing I've been seeing people play around with is trying to purge the, the hot mass with CO2 and seeing all sorts of interesting gadgets and gadgets and, you know, things with valves in order to try and minimize O2 exposure with your hops. I'm not entirely certain I buy into the value of it, but if you're going to do it at the homebrew level, you don't even necessarily need to go and you know buy yourself a fancy piece of gear. Uh, just take a two liter soda bottle, put a carbonator cap on there and fill that thing with CO2 that way and use that to shoot your hops in. If you're really that worried about the uh, oxygen ingress due to dry hopping. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the the worries about oxygen ingress due to dry hopping come from uh, maybe an incomplete understanding of gas mixing. It, it doesn't happen immediately. You can uh, open your fermenter for a few seconds, throw the hops in and close it back up and it'll just be fine. And then we already talked about it earlier on in the in the program. 
use some more of these uh, concentrated hop formats, like things like the cryo hops. Uh, we're possibly going to see the incognito products coming down to the homebrew level uh, shortly. There's also the stuff that Danny and I've been playing around with, which we love a lot, which is the colder, shorter dry hopping, uh, which means you can also turn your triple IPA around a lot faster. Because remember, all those hop oils get into solution pretty darn quick. Yeah, within within about 72 hours, you're going to be extracting most of what you're going to get. And after that, the vegetation in the hops actually starts reabsorbing it. And then you've also got things that you can also play around with, uh, like good old terpenes. We've done an episode on terpenes. They're, they're available out there on the market, and you can actually use terpenes to drive an even more concentrated hop presence. Um, just be careful. Uh, a little dabble, do you? Yeah, I was going to say, just don't dump in the whole bottle like I did, please. <laughs> yeah, that oh, was my God. As much as I love super hoppy beers, that was uh, too much, even for me. Yeah, well, and those uh, those terpenes from Matt were great. Um, hopefully, hopefully Matt will be able to uh, get back to making terpenes here shortly. All right, and so I did talk to a couple of professional brewers as I as I was mentioning earlier to get some of their takes on on how to do a triple IPA. So Jamil Zanishev, Heretic Brewing Company, Brewing Network. You know Jamil if you're listening to us. He does a beer every year called Evil Three, which is a collaboration between him, uh, Mitch Steele, and the uh, dearly departed uh, Tasty McDole. And I asked him for his keys for the Evil Three, and he says it, it's a kind of a balancing act for making his triple IPAs. He actually wants a small touch of alcohol heat in his triple IPA because he said that when he first made evil three, they made it very smooth and the alcohol was very non-detectable. And because of that, it kind of kept confusing consumers and judges. And so when he, when he, when he got a little bit of heat in there, the beer actually ended up winning awards. So he wants a little bit of that. He uses nutrient additions to actually sort of manipulate that character. Uh, he says any crystal in there should be no more than two to 3%. Use simple sugars like dextrose and hop like you've lost your mind, which may be my favorite <laughs> way to describe it. I was going to say, that's a great saying. Yep. Uh, Mitch, uh, Mitch Steele, who was the other part of the collaboration there and is also now uh, part of New Realm. And of course, you guys will remember him for writing the IPA book and being from Stone. Uh, he wants his 10 plus percent, no specialty malt. He just uses pale and 10% uh, sugar. Uh, cause he just wants enough body from the, uh, from the amount of malt without getting anything else, uh, mashes f- at 148 for two hours, which is interesting. Yeah. You know what? And I think that that is a real key point that we need to make here. Uh, mash time will almost do more for you in terms of uh, fermentability than mash temperature. Uh, malts are so hot with diastatic power. I mean, mashing at 148 is going to make a difference, but take that 148 and you run it for two hours and you'll get a really, really good conversion and a nice dry beer. There you go. And then he also talks that he wants his water to have somewhere between 110 and 100, 140 parts per million of sulfate. So uh, not the not the super, super high level, but definitely more uh, sulfate, making it more noticeable. And he only actually goes to 60 to 80 IBUs. Now, of course, that's probably 60 to 80 IBUs measured and not calculated. So uh, for us as homebrewers, that's going to be hard enough to get to. <laughs> um, and he does two dry hops, one post ferment, and then the second in the bright tanks. So again, using a little bit of that yeast power to do uh, some biotransformation, but then you know, doing a lot more exposure time uh, in the bright tanks. And he's also uh, starting to play around with using hop oils to do his. And then I also talked with uh, Tim Kazuls of Five Threads Brewing Company out in Westlake, and he's the one who makes the Craig's Nirvana, which is sort of a riff on Craig's old school triple IPA. And his big keys were basically getting a huge pitch of viable yeast. He does O2 both at knockout and then about six to eight hours later, you know, the old school way of uh, doing your, uh, your your barley wines and your big beers. Uh, he ferments at 66 for two days and then allows it to come up to 68 and 72 in order to complete out. So again, trying to control the yeast character. He wants 100 plus IBUs and he doesn't actually want anything more than 10% sugar in the boil because he, uh, he thinks that if you put more than that, you do something funny to your yeast. And he actually does a post uh, sugar feed and then he does three days between his dry hops at 58 degrees. So you can see there are some very common keys 
key threads here that we're seeing, you know, with all three of these points of view. I also talked to my friend, uh, uh, Jeremy Raub over at Eagle Rock Brewing Company, and they just released a triple IPA called Elevensies. And they, they were doing the same, very similar sort of thing. They did a low, uh, low ferment at 66 degrees, came up to 68 after a few days after it was at 50% attenuation. And it went from 23 degrees Plato. So what 23 degrees Plato is nearly uh, 1100 uh, OG from 23 degree, degrees Plato to 2.8 degrees Plato. So again, that's like 1010. And he did that in five days. And then, but his big problem was actually trying to get the diastole down. Um, and he did that via croisoning. They also have been exploring doing wort acidification. He actually, uh, he acidified it to 4.5, uh, post ferment because it had come up to 4.8 using citric acid and wanted to use that acidification just to really kind of drive a lot of that hop brightness. He's also using a uh, hop extract. He was using Eureka hop extract. Um, and so that's how he was getting the bitterness in the beer. So again, here are your keys before we move into the tasting. Pale malt, pale malt, pale malt, a little bit of sugar, more hops than you think you could ever possibly use in order to get your bitterness. Use something like an extract or use some cryo. Uh, dry hop like you mean it. Run a clean low ferment and uh, stand back. <laughs> Indeed. So, Denny, before uh, before I go into my tasting time, you have any uh, any additional comments or uh, tips for people to think about? I would just say keep in mind that what we're seeing is like various guidelines for where an I or for where a triple IPA needs to end up and how you can make it. But there's a wide range of uh, thoughts and recipes about it. Uh, I mean, if you take a look at, at the recipe that I sent you, uh, this was back before uh, I had gotten into pellets. So I was using all whole hops on it. Uh, I did put some Munich malt into it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I stuck with some of the other things people are saying. I used uh, Centennial, Columbus, and Amarillo all for dry hops uh, and and the sugar too so I guess I guess the takeaway is to look at these general guidelines and and think of it as you know the pirates code uh, it's not rules they're guidelines yeah it's, and uh, interesting do you know how old uh, Bugsby's uh, or Bugsy's uh, uh, big brewer is like how how, uh, how long ago you made this well, it's called Big Bruiser because it came from when the uh, Big Brew recipe was a triple IPA, and that's got to be at least 10 years ago, maybe even longer. I'd have to pull up the file and look at the date on it. Uh, so, you know, it was, it was from the very early days of uh, triple IPA, and it was uh, really based on one that uh, Ninkasi made that I think was called Tricera Hops, although it's been long enough for that that I don't really remember that either. Yeah. Uh, and in this one, just so everybody knows, I mean, you got 10 and a half ounces of hops for, uh, I think, what, a five gallon batch. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and you were still running, even then, your dry hop is only uh, four ounces. So, uh, I was actually, oh yeah, it was four. I was thinking it was six, but no, it was, it was four ounces of dry hops. And then, like I said, they were whole hops back then. So they soaked up a lot of beer. I guess that's something if you're a whole hop fan to take into account when you make a beer like this, that's really heavy on hops. They're going to soak up a lot of wort. So you may want to start shooting for maybe say a six gallon batch uh, instead of five or join the rest of us and use fancier hop products. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, these these days, uh, you know, the, the availability of really good pellets and uh, hop extract, uh, there's there's other ways to go about it, like I was saying. There you go. And now it's time to taste some beer. We'll be right back. So to start our tasting of triple IPAs, I think it makes sense for us to start with the rare beast, the one that is hunted, the one that caused a frenzy earlier this year. And I'm speaking, of course, of Plenty of the Younger. I have in front of me a bottle of the 2021 version of Plenty of the Younger. And I figure, why not get into it? Remember, Plenty of the Younger was originally brewed in 2005. And it's kind of, they say, a built-up version of Plenty of the Elder. 
What's amazing to me is this is 10 and a quarter percent alcohol. So this is one of the lower triple IPAs in terms of alcohol level. And they get there with an original gravity of 1088. And I also like them. In fact, on their website, they list it as having a medium bitterness. So let's crack this puppy open, shall we? A little light piffed. Oh, I can already smell the hops. So aren't you a beauty? They say copper on their website, but to me this is more blunt. I mean, if anything, this is this is almost as pale as like a really rich pilsner. But it's got a big fluffy white head, and you know, lots of lots of fine little carbonation bubbles. Hmm. And the first thing that you get, of course, when you take that first whiff is just a huge amount of hops. A little bit of tropical note, not a lot. More citrus, more pine. And also very clean. None of the sort of green vegetal bitterness that you'd expect sometimes from a beer that has a large amount of hops. And of course, this is where I think that extract comes into play. Because then you can focus all the leaf material that you're going to add into your later additions where you're really going to affect your aroma. Let's give this bad boy a taste, shall we? <sighs> oh, mercy. Okay. Very first thing. As you start to taste it, there's just a little bit of sweetness here. And I think it's vital because as you start to taste it, it's huge hop forward bitterness. It is not the sandpaper, rough, rasty sort of bitterness. This is much more, hey, bitter. It's just sitting there coating the tongue with bitterness. You still get citrus, right? I'm still getting grapefruit, but now I'm also getting that grapefruit pith. So I'm getting more oil. I'm getting more of a bitey character. And then as we come through the beer, right in the middle, it almost feels like that bitterness is overwhelming. But then it starts to fade out and drops into this very nice, dry, crisp finish. No real sweetness, particularly uh, kind of nice on a beer that's ten and a quarter percent alcohol. Let's give another swig on that, shall we? Mm. Yeah, when you get to the finish, after the malt's out of your mouth, after the the water is out of your mouth and the alcohol, what you get is that sensation of having bit down on a grapefruit rind and an orange peel, like too much orange oil, and getting this overwhelming, just hanging, coating flavor. But at the same time, I mean, you're perfectly ready for the next sip. I mean, this is a beer that will not be denied. It will not be ignored. It will not be, you know, <laughs> it, it will not languish in your glass. And I think that's exactly what people expect out of the Plenty series. Yeah, Plenty of the Elder, Plenty of the Younger. They're no longer the new kids on the block. They're no longer the hip new thing. They're no longer impressive in a way. So you see a lot of people talk sort of negatively about them because, oh, well, there's so much hype and it doesn't really live up to it. Well, no, it's not going to live up to that hype because y'all have built it up too much. But what this does end up being is an absolute exemplar of what I think the best versions of these styles are. You got a little bit of, uh, a little bit of hop burn in there, you know, just from that lingering hop character, lingering hop oil. But again, even for beer that is this aggressively bitter, it is surprisingly drinkable. And in fact, I'm going to go finish the rest of this glass before we come back and do the other beers. Okay, so moving up from the Plenty of the Younger, you know, our classic, our almost progenitor of the style, next beer that we're going to talk about is one that we talked about earlier in the podcast, we're going to talk about Evil 3 from Heretic, which was the collaboration between Mike McDowell, Jamil Zanishev, and Mitch Steele, three folks who kind of know something about an IPA. In this particular case, this is a beer they've been doing for a while. When I talk to Jamil about it, there are certain little things that he's doing in order to try and make the hops pop and also to manipulate the fermentation characteristic. But let's actually taste the beer, shall we? This comes in at 11.5%, 100 IBUs. And a very pale for SRM. And immediately upon cracking the can, the first thing you get is hops. 
Again, you get that sort of piney, dank, just, you know, all around sort of expectation of getting some bitterness involved in here. And again, this is a little bit darker, actually, I think, than the Plenty of the Younger. But the same sort of general idea of big white head. A little bit softer, actually, in the half aroma than the, the younger. Um, still getting the, the pine, still getting that citrus. No tropical fruits in this one. Getting, actually, a little bit more kind of classical IPA with just a little bit of that malt character peeking through in the back end. And then when you taste it, remember I had said that the younger was sort of a big hot blast that sort of hung out there. This one, you actually get more malt up in the front than you do with the younger. You get more of a beer-flavored beer as opposed to just a, you know, sort of a hop cannon. But there's still a lot of hop going on in here. You're still getting a bright bitterness, a little bit of burst right up in the front, along with sort of a toasty malt character that then lasts all the way through the beer. The thing I also noticed is that this one does not have the same level of lingering hot bitterness to it. It also has a more apparent alcohol character to it, which is actually something that Jamil goes for in this beer. So it's a different take, but you can see where they're kind of cousins, they're siblings. You can definitely tell the family relation here. And the other thing is, even though I said there's more of an alcohol character in here, you still cannot tell that this is 11.5%. If you are drinking this and not knowing, you know, what the alcohol content is before you start getting in the middle of your glass, I think you'll be hard-pressed to tell. And I think you'll actually get about halfway through the pint glass and go, oh, oh, that's bad. So I, I do think the Evil 3 here is sneaky, not as... Not as much of a hop up as the Plenty of the Younger, but a little bit more alcoholic and a little bit more edging into some more traditional malt flavors I'd expect from an IPI, whereas the Younger is really so much more about that hop blast in so many ways. So, cheers. And now, we'll get ready for the next one. <laughs> And now is the time for the last of the triple IPAs. This is El Segundo Brewing Company's Power Plant Triple IPA. Here in LA, if I want to have a hoppy beer and I want to make sure I'm, well, I'm bound and determined and certain that I'm going to have a good hoppy beer, I always turn to El Segundo. And of course, they call the beer Power Plant because they're right next to, well, a very large power plant and also a big Chevron refinery. So this is their triple IPA. They have one called Nuclear Power Plant, which is a quadruple IPA at 13%. But this one is hopped with Citra, Mosaic, Simcoe, and Amarillo. And they kind of say that it's an irresponsible amount of hops. And again, this is also available during the same time period. So let's try this one. So like the other two, this one is pale, yellowish. This one actually has a little orange tint to it, but it's still that same big, white, rocky head. And the hops are right there. Uh, actually, interestingly enough, more of a mango-type character. I'm going to say that's probably the mosaic along with that little diesel thing. And then the citra is hiding out there as you know, a little pineapple, a little, a little orange. And, of course, you get the amarillo giving some grapefruit. Well, and so this one actually, to me, sits between the younger and the evil three, because, again, I'm getting a big hot presence, I'm not getting that same forward slap that you get out of playing the younger, but I'm not getting the sort of the more muted one that I'm seeing out of the evil three. I'm getting something that kind of sits in between. It's still very aggressively bitter. You get a very long lingering hot finish. You get a very nice Christmas in the back end. And you don't see that same sort of, that, that slight bit of a malt character that you see in Evil 3. This one ends up being a little bit, 
well, actually not a little bit. It's a lot thinner in the back end. So kind of curious. This is 0.4% less in alcohol than the Evil 3. So this also sits in the middle in the alcohol range. With uh, this year's Plenty of the Younger being 10.25, Evil 3 being 11.5, this one's 11.1. So this does feel like sort of a middle ground between the two. The other thing, of course, is I get a lot of hop burn out of this. Um, I get a lot of feeling of hops and a little bit of that heat going down my throat uh, after having taken a sip and walked away from it for a bit. So let's see how it is on the second sip. Yeah, it's still that same bracing bitterness, but I really do like how this one plays. The other advantage that this has, I mean, one, it's local to me, so I can usually get this very, very fresh. But also, this is available. So unlike, say, either Evil 3 or Plenty of the Younger particularly, I can find this one. I could go to my local liquor store and go and pick this up. So don't just base your triple IPA love, and really don't base any of your beer love, on the hype. Remember to support your locals. This is an excellent triple IPA. I would highly recommend people pick it up. And I think the big lesson to take out of all this is all three of these are sort of following that same format. Almost all pale malt, possibly some sugar, a big clean bitter, and then a lot of hops on the back end. And getting that nice 11 plus percent alcohol or 10, 10 and a quarter percent plus alcohol. So I hope that you guys learned something during this. I'm having fun having a couple triple IPAs. Thank you. All right, everybody. I know that uh, I had said previously that this was the, the last beer of the tasting. And, well, it turned out that was supposed to be the last beer of the tasting until we got delayed in the recordings uh, because I had a death in the family and things needed some uh, time. And in that meantime, my friends over at Eagle Rock Brewing Company released their 11th anniversary beer. Now, of course, it was a little late because they're sort of their nominal anniversaries in November and then they have a public anniversary actually when they could open up to the public. And, of course, COVID has messed up everything. They released a triple IPA that they called 11Zs, uh, for all of our Lord of the Rings fans out there, 11Zs. And it is a 11 hops, 11% alcohol, and 1100 IBUs. So, we're actually, sorry, 111 IBUs. And on the can, they list Warrior, Magnum, Chinook, Eureka, Simcoe, Centennial, Idaho, 7, Amarillo, Citra, Altus, which I have not actually tried before, and Mosaic. And so we got a big 11% beer here with a ton of hops. And if you listen inside the talk, I will have talked about Jeremy's keys to making a triple IPA. But let's actually taste what the triple IPA ends up being. The first thing I can tell you is that right after that crack of the can, you get the hops coming out of the can immediately, which is what you'd want, right? All right, and it's pouring a, actually a darker than I would expect color. This is almost sort of copper orange. Brilliantly clear, bright white head, with a lot of very, very fine bubbles to it. And even holding the glass at an arm's length away from me, I can still smell those hops. So let's see. You know, interestingly, I get some of the hop leaf, and I also get a lot of herbal type hop characters. And then we go into the flavor. We do get a very broad hop flavor, but this actually has more malt expression than than I expected. You know, from a beer that's nominally 1100. Wait, no, sorry. Nominally 111 IBUs. That's going to keep messing me up. But it is interesting how much malt we're getting out of this. And again, it's that kind of that crackery, grassy, grainy sort of pale malt characteristic. But... As the the beer, even though it is this big, richer sort of IPA, there's obviously enough bitterness in this where after having taken a swallow of it, I don't feel like I've been gooped up. I don't feel like it's cloying. It doesn't feel as crisp as, say, like the Plenty of the Younger, but it feels still plenty bitter and actually pretty clean. So let's go in for that second pass. 
Yeah, and as the beer warms up, I'm getting a little more of the hop character coming up. And again, actually, more, more floral, more herbal, a little bit of citrus, but not a ton of it. Also a little bit of passion fruit. Hmm. And yeah, th- there's almost like, there's almost like a golden syrup type of flavor to the beer. You know, kind of that, just that, that slightly sweet, slightly vanilla, not caro, but you know, that invert sugar feeling along with all that hop character and a lot of the bitterness and the leaf characteristic, particularly as the beer sort of dries out in your mouth. So this one to me is interesting because this is a much softer version of that triple IPA characteristic that we've talked about and actually a little bit more, I don't want to say golden barley wine, but kind of golden barley wine with a lot of hops carried across in it. So if you've got play of the younger still reigning as sort of the big bitter balanced champion, this one actually swings a little bit more, a little more sweet, a little bit more of that golden old ale type of idea or golden strong ale idea. So this is very interesting to me. And again, as the beer goes away, I'm still getting hops all around my gum line. I'm getting that like little acidic, bitter bite. So it does really still dance around on the tongue. It's just very interesting how in the middle of the beer, while you're drinking it, because of all that malt character and all those other things going on, some of those hops actually do get suppressed. So curious and also part of the challenge of making a triple IPA. Okay, now I promise that is the last tasting because as I am recording this, the show is going to come out in a couple of days. But in the meanwhile, go and try your triple IPAs local to you. Go and try and find anything that's good. And then, of course, go and try and make your own. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at just how to blow your palate away with loads of hoppy goodness. Please give this one a try. We promise you'll love it. And just remember, hop like you've lost your mind. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast.experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is World Central Kitchen, helping feed those in need. Until next time, remember the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. 